I'm Jason Thomas. Welcome to the Hardway MBA, where we empower ambitious corporate professionals. That's you, right? With real-world business knowledge. We interview business leaders who are gracious enough to share their strategic insights and tactical activities to improve your business and career. If you enjoy these interviews, please spread the word because nothing says thank you as well as a referral to your friends and colleagues. Now let's dive in. Welcome, welcome, folks. Jason Thomas with the Hardway MBA. Have another guest. I'm very excited to introduce you to uh, Brian Grafe. Has a, a lot of history in mergers and acquisitions, and I know uh, looking at M and A from the outside in looks kind of glitzy and glamorous. I think Brian may peel back the onion on that for us and uh, show us some of the underbelly of that that might not be so glamorous. But but let's let's see, Brian. Uh, thank you for joining us. Please, you know, take a minute and introduce yourself. Hi, Jason. Glad to be part of your uh, podcast here. Uh, my name is Brian Griff. I'm the partner in charge of the transaction advisory and litigation support practice at Brownsmith Wallace. Uh, Brownsmith Wallace is a top 100 public, public accounting firm here in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, but we do all the full service uh, public accounting uh, practices that any big four firm would do. Uh, we're located in St. Louis, but we do work all across the country and actually globally, which I'll probably get into sometime during my podcast. I thought it would be good to share with your listeners if they've got time some of my background uh, because uh, it sounds like a lot of your listeners are hard-charging, uh, young millennials, uh, mid-majors, yeah. Give them a feel how I became a partner uh, in public accounting. Essentially, I graduated from the University of Illinois and I had a finance, accounting, and economics uh, degree. And I got hired by Arthur Anderson out of college here in St. Louis, where I started in the audit practice back in 1992. I spent six years, I made audit manager. I basically just volunteered to do whatever I could do to grow and develop. I always was at the top of my class as far as overtime hours and hours worked and chargeability. Worked on a number of public companies, worked on a lot of companies that went through sales uh, and acquisitions, and I just never shied away from a tough assignment uh, while I was there. Uh, when I was 28, I got recruited away to uh, be the corporate controller for LMI Aerospace here in St. Louis. Uh, right before they went through an initial public offering. And I think some of that was, as your uh, listeners are trying to earn their MBA the hard way, I actually went back and got my MBA part-time while I was working full-time and traveling at Anderson. So I had that on my resume along with my CPA. And I got hired to be the corporate controller of LMI Aerospace. We went public. Uh, I would, worked as the corporate controller for two years and did a lot of continuous improvement and got promoted into a director of operations role where I uh, did lean manufacturing for two years. Uh, after 9-11 hit, though, I was ready to move into another uh, profession and was looking to go back to Arthur Anderson, but that's when the Enron uh, stuff was going on. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up getting a job as a corporate controller, controller with a Monsanto legacy client called the stars 
And while I was at Astaris, we did all kinds of restructuring. Uh, we, we did $350 million of restructuring, shutting down plants to prepare the company to be sold. Uh, in four years, uh, we ended up taking it through a sale process and we sold it to Israel Chemical Company. It's still located here as their North American headquarters in St. Louis. It's about a $2 billion phosphorus chemical and specialty chemical manufacturer in the United States that's owned by Israel Chemical. Mm-hmm. Uh, after six months of being part of the transition and, 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 and being the controller for the North American headquarters along with the subsidiary CFO uh, role that I, that I performed, I got recruited away to be Wayland Security's first uh, chief financial officer uh, here in St. Louis. Uh, Wayland Security was a, a security officer, man security guard company, private family-owned business. Uh, while I was there, we were when I started, we were about a $40 million company. When we left, it was a $120 million company. Wow. Uh, so I, I was, I, and we grew into 13 different states, and it's one of the largest security guard companies uh, in, in the United States. Uh, so it was a great experience being a part of that experience. I got over 4,000 security officers across the country. Uh, but I got recruited to then go and be a, a chief financial officer slash chief operating officer for a private equity owned firm here in town called Life Uniform. And it was a, one of the lar- it was the largest healthcare retailer of scrubs and medical apparel uh, in the country. We had 230 stores across 38 states. Uh, after five years, we took it through a sale process. Uh, during those five years, I, I basically negotiated and led up 10, af- 10 acquisitions uh, to grow the company. And then we sold it uh, through a strategic uh, offering uh, at the end of t- or in, in the middle of 2013. And that's when I approached Brown Smith Wallace about using this uh, transaction background of mine and just being a corporate CFO. And, and finally, I was a CEO at, at Life Uniform when it was sold uh, to bring that to help clients uh, go through mergers and acquisition transactions, along with uh, helping attorneys with litigation support engagements. Yeah, so I, you know, I think the the lesson, some of the lessons that I take out of that, Brian, as I think through it, is uh, you really demonstrated there. You never backed away from a tough assignment. Some of those things, uh, I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. As you made some of those leaps, they may have been intimidating when you said, "Yes, I can do that" the first time. Uh, but some of the confidence of knowing you'll figure it out, and knowing that there's translatable skills to go from one industry to another to go from finance to operations, um, to go from, you know, public to private, private to public. Uh, you, you were never too intimidated to say, yeah, I can do that and be confident and go do it. And thanks. Thanks for recognizing that. And I think I, I give a lot of credit to a bunch of mentors I've had along the way that, that always encouraged me to push myself uh, to go beyond my comfort zone and maybe take on that next challenge mm-hmm. even before I thought I'd be ready for that and just have the confidence that once I got in there, I'd figure out how to make it work. And, and throughout my career, changing my career and going into so many different industries and positions, 
sometimes just a leap of faith that you, you have to trust your your guts and your intelligence that once you get in there, you'll figure it out. Yeah. Every case, I always looked at it as it, it's going to be a great experience, even in the situations where we were downsizing and restructuring. Uh, in my final uh, job as the acting CEO of Life Uniform, we ended up actually taking it through a bankruptcy to shed some of the leases. Uh, and so I had to manage 1,200 employees through a bankruptcy process. Mm. Uh, so it was quite an experience. It's not always great times, but it can always be a good experience for your career. Right. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, keeping those things separated in your mind is, you know, I'm going through this, I'm leading this team through this. Uh, that does isn't necessarily a reflection of me as a person. It's a reflection of where we're at today as a business. Um, I, it's something that uh, I see young people struggle with sometimes. Um, yeah. So, so let's dive into some of the, uh, I, I could honestly, Brian, I could go back and just ask you about uh, 25 questions just about your background, but let's, Let's get into some of the M&A stuff uh, before we before we lose everyone here. The sure, uh, I, I want to start with some terms because I think there's uh, we and I I mean I throw these terms around believing most people know what they mean, but I'm not even 100 percent confident that I know what they actually mean. So when someone uh-huh. says M&A, they're they're referring to mergers and acquisitions. What does that mean to you, somebody who who lives that life? you know, in the transaction world every day. And that word transaction, I mean, that's in your title. It's it's a group you lead. How does that relate to mergers and acquisitions? You know, that's a, that's actually a really good question because uh, in my title, one of my certifications I hold is a, is a certified mergers and acquisition advisor. And I'm kind of sitting here chuckling because uh Really, what we work on is acquisitions and sales divestitures of mm-hmm. companies, but that doesn't sound as good, so they call it mergers and acquisitions. And when I think of mergers and acquisitions, I think of the same thing. Usually, it's an acquisition. Yeah. Uh, even when you hear of companies say they're going to merge, there's always one company that really did the acquisition and takes control. Uh, I guess maybe in certain service professionals, like maybe accounting firms, law firms, where, where it's a, a group of partners who own a business mm-hmm. and they decide to merge in with another business, maybe that's what, where the term merger c- comes from. But in most cases, you're either acquiring a company or you're selling a company. Yeah. So that's why we call it transaction advisory because that kind of encompasses both sides of the deal. Great. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Merger, merger just might be in, for many people, a nicer way to say something that they're less comfortable saying. Um, <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> so, you know, as part of that, we, we talk about things like due diligence. What's, what's that mean? Okay. Well, due diligence is something that's performed usually in an acquisition situation, but if there can be some pre-sale due diligence as well to help prepare a company for a sale. And due diligence is what's done uh, to make sure what you're buying is what you expected to buy. And you're trying to go in and value a company and test the earnings. Uh, you're not doing a full audit of the mm-hmm. earnings in the financial statements. 
and legal issues and insurance and all that, but you're going in basically kicking the tires uh, and making sure that you're getting a, you're getting what you thought you were going to get. Uh, typically, uh, a company is going to be sold. Uh, a lot of times, it's sold by an investment banker or an, or a business broker. Uh, usually, the company is is stating uh, certain facts and providing financial information about their performance. And as a buyer, it's up to you to perform good quality due diligence to make sure that what they say is as accurately valid as, as possible. So if I'm a selling company, I'm stating certain facts about my revenue and inventory turn and these kind of things that are going to lead to a valuation of X. And, and that's why yeah. you should give me this much money for the, for the business. The due diligence then is really digging into all those facts. I would imagine if I'm if I'm buying the company that I'm really looking to poke holes in some of the the key details there so I can lower that valuation. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know it depends. Uh, I always like to look at these transactions as though they need to be a win-win for both mm-hmm. sides. Uh, a lot of times the you know the employees are going to come on board later. Sometimes it's the business owner, he's going to stay on board because he's He's tied into some kind of employment agreement to make sure that the business is going to be successful. Uh, but for some of your your listeners who may not be as knowledgeable about an acquisition or, or, or a sale transaction, if you can compare it to really selling your car or selling your house, mm-hmm. sometimes you have a real estate agent or an auto dealer, a lot of it works the same. It's just it's so much more complicated because there's so many more risks uh, that you have when you're buying a business, but you know if you if you went to a if you saw an ad in the paper for a car uh, listed for twenty thousand uh, dollars, chances are you probably wouldn't just send a check for twenty thousand dollars or a credit card payment over and say just send me the car. You probably want right. to go take it for a test drive, look yep. under the hood, uh, check the oil, yep. uh, check the reports on it to make sure it hadn't been any crashes and. That's similar to when you're buying a business. There's just a yeah. certain uh, checklist that you go through as a transaction professional to make sure you're going to get what you're intending to pay for. And yeah. there are times that you get in there and you, you, you lift under the hood and you find some issues and you bring it to the seller's attention and they have no choice but to lower the, the asking price because you found problems with their company. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times you find opportunities for your client on the buy side that says, you know, once you get in here, you're going to be able to actually make even more money than they're saying because you might be bringing some synergies to the table with the way you can buy materials at a cheaper price or your labor costs might be different or your, your benefit costs structure might be different. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of things that go into buying a company, but, you know, to think of it in terms of, you know, it's just, the same kind of process as you would go through uh, as any diligent buyer would go through and buying a, a, a car or a house or on the other side to the same thing. If you're selling a house, you do things to prepare that house for sale to try to maximize that value. And that's yeah. the same thing you can do as a business owner too. Yeah. So talk to that a little bit. I think as a, as a business owner or a leader in a business that uh, is going to go through a divestiture, uh, or a sale, 
what kind of things can I do uh-huh. to prepare or what should I be looking for in that in that deal? Okay, yeah, I tell you what, I don't have the article with me right now, but I was just reading an article about gosh, how many millions of businesses uh right now have owners who are over fifty five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with, with the whole baby boomer generation, you have lots of private family-owned businesses out there, many of which don't even have succession plans in place uh, to prepare their business or have an exit strategy in place. You also have, you know, just the private companies that are owned by private equity, which the most private equity firms tend to turn over their portfolio companies, you know, on average anywhere from three to five to seven to 10 years. So there's always companies that have to go on the market and be sold. And like I said, using that, that house analogy is if you were going to put your house up for sale or, you know, it, it's as simple as if you were going to sell your car, they always say just washing and waxing your car and, and having a detail, you know, before right. you go and put it up for sale can make a huge difference. And so when we're talking to business owners about preparing uh, their business for sale, one of the first things we usually talk to them about is, is trying to help them understand what it's worth. So just like if you were going to sell your car, you'd probably go out and look up what the blue book value is to get an idea for what it right. would sell for. Uh, same with the house. You probably have a real estate agent uh, you know, give you an estimate. In the end, there's mm-hmm. probably going to be an appraisal performed. And those are things that my firm uh, does for business owners is we go in and do what's called a business valuation, which is similar to an appraisal. Uh, however, it's for businesses. And we'll go in and, and help the owner understand this is what their business could be worth uh, to a hypothetical buyer out on the market. And we also try to identify uh, value drivers and value eroders that are impacting that valuation so that if they're two to three years out into the future thinking that they're going to sell their company, we try to help them help them uh, develop a strategy to maximize the value for their business. Uh, other things that you know a business owner needs to be thinking about is their tax situation. There's lots of times they could be a their just their corporate structure could could be an issue. They might need to change from a C corp to an S corp. Uh, there's there's capital gains issues involved. Uh, there's a lot of estate planning uh, for a business owner that they need to be thinking about because when they sell their business, it could be the largest single windfall uh, that they generate mm-hmm. in their entire career. And they need to think about, you know, the estate and how to protect that, that investment once they get it. Uh, but one of the other things we see a lot of is just the, the lack of good quality financial information. Uh, there's a lot of companies out there that, that may not be required to have an audit done. Uh, they may treat their accounting records on a cash basis. Uh, I like to, there's a, there's a saying I like to use that having good quality financial information won't necessarily increase the value of your business, but having poor quality financial information definitely is going to have a negative impact on your business. Uh, when the due diligence guys come in and start to poke holes uh, in the numbers that you put together, if they start to find accounting errors and irregularities and issues uh, with your accounting numbers that don't support the story that you're telling, it could have a significant negative impact on mm-hmm. the business. So 
there's a lot of times we like to get in when we're helping a company go through a sale and we like to go through and, and really do our own kicking the tires and making sure that the numbers all support the story. And there's a lot of times with revenue recognition and just the way companies are aggressive in some of their accounting uh, treatment that we try to work through and try to help prepare those financials to be in the best possible shape and as accurate as possible. Uh, and then there's also, you know, the marketing of the business and, and just going through the process, helping a business owner find a good transaction attorney uh, to go through the process. Uh, there's definitely differences between uh, using your personal tax accountant to help you with the transaction and your personal family attorney or company attorney uh, for mm-hmm. doing a transaction. I mean, it's a specialized uh, expertise. Uh, and I've, I've, I've done a lot of transactions where I've been the transaction professional and I've used a transaction attorney and we've gone up against the side that wasn't as sophisticated. Uh, and that makes it, it makes it challenging and uh, it doesn't put the other side at, at the best advantage possible for negotiating right. Uh, right. the outcome of the transaction. Yeah. So uh, those are some of the things that I'm considering if I'm looking to, to sell. Now, I, I think... Mm-hmm. Most folks in the audience can guess the, you know, if I'm looking to buy, there's a counter to almost every one of those things. Uh, in addition yep. to, or, or, you know, expound upon that a little bit, in addition to what we would kind of glean from the, the seller's perspective, what, what is a business buyer or somebody who's in the market to acquire? What do they need to be looking at? Um, especially given the fact that, shoot, if, if, there's a bunch of uh, baby boomers, 55 to 60 right now. That means a decade from now, uh, the 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 buyers it's a buyer's market. Um, it sounds like to me. I, I got my fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right now it's actually a seller's market just because of where things are in the economy. But that changes all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if there's more businesses on the market than demand, then it could become a buyer's market. And the- and the values could come down. Uh, you know, a lot of the things I did talk about in preparing a business for sale, it's just the, you know, the vice versa for buying a company. But uh, I guess the difference is in buying a company, you know, you're going to end up having to run that company after you buy it. So there's things you've got to be thinking of as you go through it. Uh, the first couple things are the obvious ones, like, you know, is the valuation, the asking price that the seller wants, is that what you're willing to pay? And a lot of times it does help to have that appraisal or valuation done by an independent professional firm that you can hold up there to the seller when you're negotiating and say, you know, you're asking X, but, you know, my professionals are saying your business is only worth Y. And this is this is the reasons why it's worth less than what you're asking. And that can help you in the negotiation phase. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once you get to, you know, a signed letter of intent where you're, you have exclusive rights under confidentiality agreements to go in and, and lift under the hood and, and test the numbers and do your legal and financial due diligence. Typically what you do is you put together a quality of earnings report and that quality of earnings report is helping you make sure that the earnings that the seller says the business will generate is what it's generating. And a lot of times that report is, is relied upon by bankers and financial institutions and investors uh, for providing the funds to buy that business. So the more professional a report 
and reliable that report is, uh, the more value it can help add. And then, you know, as I started this segment off with thinking about post-closing, there's all kinds of accounting issues and other things that come up, but a couple of the biggest things is just the transition uh, and the integration of buying that company. You got to make sure that the key employees are locked up under non-compete agreements, confidentiality agreements. Uh, if that if that owner is the brand, if he's the guy or the gal, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he's the company, uh, you got to make sure that there's some transition plan in place to where uh, if you uh, give the seller uh, a boatload of money. They don't just decide to run off to Tahiti and and leave all the customers in the lurch. So there's things with customers, vendors, uh, key employees uh, that you want to make sure aren't going to cause an issue post-closing. And then you have all those things like you talked about up front about the cultural challenges uh, that that you have whenever there's an acquisition or a merger there's always going to be cultural challenges because the buyer is different than the seller. Uh, right. And there's always changes that go on. Uh, sometimes companies come in and buy, buy another business and they, they start to do layoffs and, and there's synergy, synergistic opportunities that they're looking for. It's just, they have different rules, different policies, different procedures. Uh, there's always going to be changes. So, you know, anyone that goes to list through or, is going to go through a transaction like that. The key is to be flexible and open-minded because there's going to be changes and you just don't know what they are, uh, but they're going to unfold. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at this as perhaps mid-level managers and we're seeing, uh, we're seeing that our organization may be uh, acquisitive or uh, maybe in a position to be acquired, uh, what kind of things should we be doing to no, we may not be on the deal team. We may not be doing due diligence, perhaps. I don't know. But what kind of things, as we hear these rumors start to stir, could we do to better position ourselves as a, a long-term asset for the company and improve our career? Well, process, right? yeah, I mean, if, you, if, if, if your audience members are the go-getters that you know, you're, you're telling me they, they are, uh, the best recommendation for, for them or for anyone is to try to see if you can be involved. And and like you said, they might not be on that deal team, but whenever there's an acquisition or a sale on either side, there's a lot of work. And by human nature, there's just a lot of people that that don't want to do that extra work. And and no matter how great, you could be an acquisitive company and you might be buying a, a company that could be the greatest acquisition ever, but you're still going to run into to fellow employees that look out on it negatively because it might mean more work for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess I've never been one to sit there thinking, oh, I'm going to have to work more and I'm not going to get paid anymore for it. I guess I've always looked at it as if, if I can get involved, there's a lot of opportunity to learn learn something new to show how valuable I can be and maybe it'll pay off in the long run, uh, whether it's with my current company or with my future marketability because I'll have been through something like that. So 
I would say never be shy of, of, volu- of trying to volunteer, seeking out opportunities to help. Uh, I've seen it on the cell side too, uh, where people, you know, they start to hear the rumors and they start thinking this might be the time to start putting my resume together, find a new job. Uh, I'm not going to say anything or I'm just going to sit around and gossip with people or I'm going to sit around and gossip with people about what, what if and what might happen. And then I've seen other people who go right into their boss's office uh, when they, when, you know, they are in the know, uh, they've been brought into the circle and they just rolled up their sleeves and said, how can I help them and be involved? Because I want to be a part of this process uh, to understand more about what's going on rather than being a victim and, and mm-hmm. waiting until it happens. Uh, and I've seen those people end up, you know, putting their best foot forward uh, when they're dealing with the buy team coming in or the due diligence team that's coming in. Uh, they're the ones seen as the positive go-getters and, and they're the ones that are probably going to be more likely to survive uh, in a strategic uh, transaction where a buyer may be coming in with mm-hmm. redundant uh, positions. Uh, you know, that I guess that's a bit, and that might be worth talking about too. We didn't get into this, but there's usually two kinds of buyers. And one buyer is a strategic buyer that might mm-hmm. already be a company that's in that industry and already has uh, corporate overhead to do a lot of functions mm-hmm. and sales reps across the country and stuff. And then there's the private equity financial buyer that usually doesn't have that infrastructure. And so a lot of times uh, the private equity company is going to come in and, and buy a company and, and they may wait a while. They may shake up upper management uh, by bringing in a new CEO to run things or a new CFO. Uh, but a lot of times the rank and file, middle management, sales reps, usually those guys you know, are going to be allowed an opportunity to prove to the new financial buyer that they can do their job and perform. Uh, and it could be a great opportunity for them because they might change the incentive structure or bonus program or, or what whatnot, and it could be good for that. Uh, but then you do have strategic buyers who come in and they already have some overlap and some redundant positions. And in some cases, it's not necessary. You know, you should never look at it as, oh, I'm an HR manager and the company buying us already has an HR manager, so I, I'm going to lose my job because they're buying us. Right. Uh, sometimes, sometimes acquisitions happen because you're trying to acquire talent too. Uh, a lot right. of times, I've seen companies get uh, end up doing an acquisition, and one company has a great marketing department, and the other company has a better sales force. And combining those two, uh, you know, makes it an even stronger uh, combined company. Uh, but some of the acquired, some of the people on the acquiring company end up losing their job because uh, the company that got acquired had stronger uh, human resource asset, human right. human asset. Right. So at the end of the day, turn. I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're looking to have the the strongest uh, organization possible you know who that's that's usually how it should work it doesn't always work that way (laughs) but uh that's you know if if you're in it for the best interest of the overall company right you know you're going to be doing that you're going to evaluate who's the best sales sales rep in this region between these two people Mm -hmm. 
uh, and make those decisions. Obviously, it's not always that easy, and it's not you can't always look at just performance numbers and metrics and stuff like that to make those decisions. But right. you know, you're doing your best. You you know by staying positive and energetic and always being motivated to help and go above and beyond. That's going to go a long way uh, towards your future uh, right. in a transaction. Yeah, I, you know, and I think that's great advice. So, Brian, thanks for sharing so much uh, uh, about this topic. That I think that uh, you know we scratched the surface. Uh, mm-hmm. Like with anything in the business world, if people want to dig into this a little bit deeper. Uh, there's a couple things they can do. I would imagine uh, there are books out there that uh, that you like that you think are worth reading. Do you have a, a favorite book uh, about, I don't know if it needs to be about M&A or about business, a favorite business book that you would point people to? Well, I'd, I'd say the, the one book that I consider one of the best business Bibles out there that I learned the most from was Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yeah. Uh, and... You can't go wrong reading that book and digesting all all the principles, the, the seven core principles that he that he talks a lot about. And that's where I learned a lot about my business career. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is as you were talking about the the people that are putting their best foot forward and volunteering and kind of seeing reality for what it is and then hustling to make it better. I it coming right out of good to great the Stockdale paradox that uh, uh, Jim Collins talks about a lot that you have to, you have to understand how bad are things and really at your core, understand that and main at the same time, hold that positive possibility that you can make the outcome that you're after. And when you can do both yep. of those things, it puts you in a really powerful position. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about people doing. On a, on a very personal yep. level. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, thank you so much for uh, for this and, uh, you know, for answering these questions for me and the audience and, uh, you know, helping me understand some of this stuff better. If people want to reach out to you and, A, I would encourage people to say thank you. Uh, if you learn something, you know, tell Brian. He, people volunteer for to do this podcast. So uh, let them know that you appreciate it. Um, and if somebody needs your help, uh, where do they get a hold of you? Well, my email address, Jason, is bgraiff at bswllc.com. My phone number is 314-983-1390. Great. And uh, I'll, I'll put some of that in the show notes and make it so that the uh, – all the 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 web scrapers can't get it, but the people who are really looking for it can. So if you if you're driving, okay. please don't stop and write that down. Uh, go to the show notes, <laughs> and you'll find it there. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Brian. I don't know. Thanks, Jason. Glad I could be a part of your show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hardway MBA. Look us up on Twitter at Hardway MBA. Our website's hardwaymba.com. Facebook, LinkedIn, we've got groups everywhere. If you don't guess we should be talking to, please make an introduction. Nothing says thank you to me like referring this podcast to your friends. Drop a link to them. Let them know they should listen. Thank you so much.